It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. Well, you know, here we are, Rich. Except I never cease to marvel at the miracle of radio and technology in general. So let's tell our listeners that you and I right now are uh, several hundred miles apart, and you're in one BRN studio, and I'm in another, but because of technology, we can sound as though we're shoulder to shoulder. And the point is, we are heart to heart, aren't we? We are together. We're just (laughs) separated by distance. Yeah, separated by distance, but of one heart, one heart and one mind. Rich, I want to open the program today with a song I did not know existed until several weeks ago when I interviewed John Avery. And John Avery is an African-American. And he mentioned this song, and I had never heard it before. But since then, I have found so many, many of my friends that say, oh, yes, when I was a kid, I remember that from when I went to church. Here it is, the rough side of the mountain. I'm striving, trying to make it through this barren angle. Yes, sir. But as I go from day to day, I can hear my Savior say, Trust me, child. Come on. that song and I want to thank my friend again John Avery for telling me about it and so many of our listeners apparently now I remember Rich uh, maybe you do as well but when I was a kid in our church we would sing the old song take my hand precious Lord we all need his help don't we absolutely yeah that was an old hymn that I sure remember I sure remember from my Now, one more song that I want to use in opening this program today is a hymn that we used to sing when I was a little kid. Man, I'll tell our new listeners, I'm 87 years old, and uh, I remember as a child, 
You know, this also shows the importance of a childhood. The things you remember, never forget, are many times things you learned as a child. But we used to stand at Little Robbinsdale Bible Church in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. It's a suburb of Minneapolis singing this hymn. See, folks, if you remember it and sung it in your church. Standing on the promises Rich, how long has it been since we've heard that old hymn? Hi. You know, what was really nice is hearing all of the additional verses. Yeah. Uh, the second, third, and fourth verses to that. that was terrific. Could you also hear the children singing and the men singing and the women singing and the teenagers singing? It was a genuine, it was a genuine hymn of faith, wasn't it? Right. Standing on the promises of God. That's yeah. the solid rock. I want to open this subject. Because in thinking back over the many, many years, there's no doubt that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. People want to think, well, everybody's good. Everybody's good, but the Bible says no. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And with that in mind, I have over the years wondered, what was it about the German people that they permitted the Nazis to do what they did to the Jewish people. You know, Germany was not filled with Nazis. Uh, there were people living there going to, I suppose, their various churches, things like that. What is it that made them blind and so willing to accept something that is so evil? But then, the same thing, folks. Let's not forget, in the days of slavery, and uh, maybe right on up to today when people 
are not given equality of opportunity in education. I mean, there's nothing more important to a child, a little child, than to have a teacher really dedicated to helping that child be awakened to the wonder of knowledge and the wonder of all of the things around them, to lift their spirits and all of that. So what is it uh, that would permit people in America uh, with the Bible, with the Bible, with churches, with the preaching, uh, sermons, and all of that, yet it's slavery and then later on Jim Crow and all of the nasty stuff that followed. And uh, well then folks, I'll just, just think with me a minute. I think a lot about today. What is our culture doing today? And for many years, in the treatment of a baby who has their right to life and then liberty and then the pursuit of whatever is important to them. Hopefully it would be to follow the Lord. But when is a baby a human baby? When is a baby a baby? I want us to just take three minutes and 30 seconds and think about it. Now listen, as you hear, I would love to discuss it with somebody because either it's true or it isn't. Either it's true and it's a fact supported by the Bible and then backed up by science or it isn't. And I would love to get into a discussion with somebody who could say, well, it is, but it's not that important. It really is, but let's not worry about it. It really is, but it's none of my business. Or some pastor who would say, yes, it is, but I never mention it. I never preach about it. After all, it's controversial. Well, of course it is. Sin is controversial. Terrible things are always controversial. Now listen to what you're going to hear in the next three minutes and 30 seconds. You're in a conversation about abortion, and someone says, human life doesn't begin at conception. It's just a clump of cells. What would you say? It's easy to say life doesn't begin at conception because an embryo doesn't look like what we think people should look like. But we know human life begins at some point. Here are a few things to remember while you think about when that is. First, life doesn't begin at birth. It isn't logical to say life begins at birth because that would suggest that the baby inside the womb one day prior to birth wasn't alive. It's not reasonable to say an individual who is alive at birth is not alive one day prior to birth. The only difference is where they are. So we know life does not begin at birth. Second, life doesn't begin at viability. Many argue that human life begins once a baby can survive on her own outside the womb. But there are problems with this argument too. After all, viability changes based on technology. Today, babies can be born at 24 weeks and survive. But 200 years ago, that wasn't possible. Viability is also determined based on where you are born. Wealthy nations make things possible for babies that wouldn't be possible in a poorer country. Does that mean a 24-week baby in the United States is more alive than a 24-week baby in the jungles of the Congo? Of course not. So life must be determined by something other than viability. Third, life does not begin with a heartbeat. We know that living things only come from other living things. It wouldn't be possible then for the embryo to be non-living for the first few weeks and suddenly spring into life. So the embryo has to be alive prior to the heartbeat. 
Does this mean that we can be alive without a heartbeat? Yes. That's actually what makes the newly conceived embryo more functionally impressive than a born person. The embryo has an ability to live, grow, and move through the stages of human development without the feature you and I need to continue our growth and development. If life doesn't begin at birth, viability, or heartbeat, when does it begin? Life begins at conception, fertilization. At fertilization, a living mother and father give life to a whole living organism, genetically distinct from his or her mother and father. No, the embryo doesn't look like everyone else, but aren't we past the idea that someone has to look a certain way before they are considered human? Think of it like a Polaroid picture. Initially, all you will see are black smudge marks. The moment the photo is taken, however, the image is captured. It just needs time to develop. The same is true for you and me. The moment of sperm egg fusion, we in our uniqueness from our parents began to exist. We just needed time to develop. Let's review. Life doesn't begin at birth because that suggests you aren't alive the day before birth. Life doesn't begin at viability because viability depends on where you were born and when. Life doesn't begin at the heartbeat either because that requires you to believe the heartbeat emerged from someone that isn't alive. So we're left with one option. Life begins at conception, at fertilization. It's what science tells us and logic requires us to acknowledge. Rich, were you in the courtroom with me when Dr. Jerome Lejeune was testifying? That's almost 20 years ago. Were you there? Well, I sure was. We were, we were there together, weren't we? Right. And it was such an interesting. Dr. Jerome Lejeune was the number one geneticist in the world, recognized as such from Paris, France. And it was a, it was a case being tried as to whether or not uh, this is a human being that was done away with before birth, you see. And he said, now this is a number of years ago, folks. He said it is not even a matter of debate among scientific people as to when life begins of the human being. He went on to say that the life cycle of the human being, now listen to me, folks, begins at conception and continues through stages of development until approximately 25 years, at which point the, 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 the human being starts to, well, I suppose to put it in my words, fall apart because the, the cells of the body are no longer multiplying and replacing the ones that are dying as fast after 25 years. That's why you get the look of maturity, they call it. It really is the slightest bit of a wrinkle or around your eyes, you know, you can see that your skin kind of tightening up a little bit. But from 25 years on, you have passed the peak. And he said that is the cycle of life for the human being from conception until death occurs through trauma or disease, one or the other. Isn't that something? But he went on to say, that's a fact. That's a scientific fact. The only question remaining is, do we care? I want every radio listener to ponder that for a moment. Do we care? 
do we care in our churches? If we lived at the time of the Nazi and the Holocaust, would we care in our churches? Knowing what we know now, if we lived at the time of slavery or Jim Crow or all of the other nasty stuff, would we care in our churches then? Believe me, then there were lots of churches, lots of preachers, but did we care? Maybe that's the problem we've got right now. Do we care? And Rich, that takes us to the message of Ronnie Floyd. Uh, you tell the folks about him. That's right. I was there. Uh, Ronnie Floyd is the uh, former pastor for 30 years of Cross Church in Springdale, Arkansas. That's northwest Arkansas. And at this time, last year, he was the president of the National Day of Prayer. So this is the National Day of Prayer a year ago in Statuary Hall at the United States Capitol in Washington, what is Washington, he, what is he speaking about? It's about love one another. Yeah, here it is, folks. Let's enjoy it. There is nothing more powerful than the words of Jesus Christ. Love one another. These words set a biblical standard that is high and holds each of us to immediate accountability in all of our relationships. When these words are disobeyed, the Holy Spirit rushes in and convicts us instantly. Dr. Oscar Thompson was one of my former evangelism professors at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He said these words about love, and I've never forgotten them. Love travels on the tracks of a relationship. Dr. Thompson further said, the word relationship is the most important word in the English language. When God and people are valued in the highest manner, then you will value all the relationships. And there's what I know. The more you value God in your life, the more you will value other people. I want you to imagine with me the setting in John chapter 13 of what happened in the life of Jesus Christ. Between the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, and the forecast of the denials of Peter. In this setting, Jesus declared these profound words. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Three times in John 13, 34, is that word love used? John 13, 35 goes on and says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One action alone. One action alone. The Bible says, lets people know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Love one another. Did you know that while love is used 12 times from John chapter 1 through John chapter 12, love is used 44 times in John chapter 13 through John chapter 21. Love is the key theme in Jesus' farewell to his disciples. Jesus' prayer for unity 
in John 17 for his disciples and the church was driven by his burden of love for us. Just think what would happen if love one another occurred across American life. How many marriages would be saved and healed? How many businesses would experience more prosperity? How many churches would thrive, grow, and explode with gospel advance? How much more great things could get done in city government, state governments, and in the United States government? How much safer would our schools and our public venues become? How much more poverty and homelessness would be eliminated if we would learn to love one another? And how much more exciting would your life be every day if it was permeated by the power of love? Loving one another is Jesus' will for your life and my life. Over 30 years ago, I made a decision that has freed me all these years. That regardless of the way others treat me, or what they may say about me, or what they may write about me, I will never let anyone outside of my circle of love. I challenge you tonight to do the same. Never let anyone outside of your circle of love. Treating other people like trash may be vogue in the culture, but it is not Christian. And demeaning the value of someone publicly might light up social media world or become breaking news across the United States, but it is not Christian and it is just not right. I want to remind everyone here tonight, government cannot fix us. Politics cannot heal us, but loving one another can change the world. You see, we are not the answer. Christ is the answer. And Jesus reminds us of these words, and he warns us with these words. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Your family is not an exception to this. And your church is not an exception to this. And the United States of America is not an exception to this. It is time for us to come together, and it's past time for us to learn to love one another. An unloving and divided church cannot call an unloving and divided nation to love and unity. Did you know that when Jesus said, I give you a new command, new means new in kind, new in experience, and new that is fresh. Why? Because Jesus was dying on the cross for us and the coming of the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit was upon us. Love like this transforms people. Love like this transcends problems in relationships. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We must forgive. You don't have an option. We must release. We must forget. And we must seek the one who offends us and love him or her in a better way. You see, when you belong to Jesus, you belong to love. 
Love is the supreme test in all relationships. Love is the perfect tense of live. Meaning if you do not love, you will not live, really live. The love is the badge of Christian discipleship. Let me ask you tonight, will you choose love and forgiveness? Love and restitution. Love and a future that is transformed by the power of God's unconditional love for us. And I want to remind everyone tonight, you are not known by your creeds, by your songs, by your doctrine, by your knowledge, by your achievements, by your dress, or by your appearance. Jesus says you're only known by your love. We need a baptism of love by the Holy Spirit that will immerse the entire church of Jesus in America and the baptism of the spirit of love that will immerse all of our nation today. From the church house to the state house all the way to the White House, we need to learn to love one another. On August the 27th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gathered his closest advisors in the lobby of the Willard Hotel in this city. And after a lengthy discussion, King retreated to his guest room for contemplation and quiet. He told them, I am going upstairs to my room to counsel with my Lord. I will see you all tomorrow. It was on that day, after being up most of the night on August the 28th, 1963, that from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King delivered his epic address, I have a dream. He changed not only his own generation, but he changed all generations. I'm telling you, God can do more in a moment than we can ever do in a lifetime. And it's time for us today to consult the Lord God of heaven about our nation. And perhaps we also would change the world. And that's why we're going to pray for a moment. Yeah. Okay, Rich, uh, we'd better get out of here. Give us a phone number. Uh, 1-800-345-2621. That's the listener comment line. We'd love to hear from you. 1-800-345-2621. Well, the time goes by so quickly. This is Dick Bott with my son Rich with this chapter of The Complete Story. We'll see you later. We'll see you later.